Hello, welcome again to another episode on the Let Fuel Prosper series. My name is Dr. Vance Gann. I hope you're having a prosperous day. Well, today I have on a, a frequent guest and someone who's been on the program before and, and really another happy liberty warrior who's on the front lines of talking about, you know, what it means to have liberty, freedom, prosperity, all the stuff that we talk about often here on this show. And it's none other than Dr. Alex Salter. Alex, welcome to Let Fuel Prosper Show again. Thanks, Van. Great, Vance. Great to be back. Yeah, well, it's really great. A pleasure to have you on the program again. Um, we've got some good stuff to talk about. You know, we're recording this on June 23rd, 2023, but this will be released on July 4th. Happy Independence Day coming up. Yes. And, and also with your newest book, your latest book is going to be coming out, The Spirit of 76, Libertarianism and American Renewal. And so um, we're going to have a lot of conversation about that. Um, but just real quick, you know, you've already been on the program, so people can go back and watch some of those. Let me give a short overview of your bio, and then we'll get right into it. So Alex is the Georgie G. Snyder Associate Professor of Economics in the Rawls College of Business at Texas Tech University, the Comparative Economics Research Fellow at TTU's Free Market Institute, and an Associate Editor of the Journal of Private Enterprise. He is also the Sound Money Project Senior Fellow and a Young Voices Senior Contributor. So as I said, his newest book is The Spirit of 76, Libertarianism, American Renewal. It's released on July 4th, 2023. He's also the author of other books that you should all check out, Money and the Rule of Law, um, Generality and Predictability in Monetary Institutions, published by Cambridge University Press in 2021, The Political Economy of Distributism, to have here, Property, Liberty, and the Common Good, published by the Catholic University of America Press in May of 2023. And then The Medieval Constitution of Liberty, Political Foundations of Liberalism in the West, published by University of Michigan Press, June 2023. So, I mean, he, he has tons of books that are coming out. It's, it's quite remarkable, all the work that you do, Alex. And so as we get into all this, instead of going back and saying, what motivates you? We've already had that in previous ones. What's motivating you lately to be so productive and, and everything else that's been going on? As it turns out, anger is a wonderful muse. There's a lot of stuff going on on the right and the left where there is a hostility to freedom, a hostility to markets, to exchange, to free enterprise. And that's resulting in a lot of bad stuff. Obviously, the American economy continues to be plagued by inflation. The financial sector is not terribly strong. We have to worry about energy markets not producing as well as they could, the administrative state run amok. There's a lot to be concerned about. But as you said, I think that the proper perspective on these things is to adopt the perspective of a happy warrior. America is not doomed. We don't have to put up with policy stagnation. We don't have to put up with a bad, underperforming economy. We can and will win the battle of ideas to get this thing back to where it should be. Yeah. Well, amen. And I agree with you. And there's, I'm glad that you're on the front lines fighting about this and writing in the Wall Street Journal and everywhere else that you're, that you're writing. It's really important. And there's some big discussions that are going on. And I want to hit on some of those topics today. But the first thing I want to start off with is this, this new book, you know, um, The Spirit of 76. It's a great title, great looking book. Um, I hope everybody goes out and buys a copy. How would you explain it? What, what's the big key points that you'd want to make out of, out of The Spirit of 76? Yeah, great place to start. So this book has the specific audience of primarily conservatives who are sympathetic to liberty, but don't necessarily make liberty a priority in their politics. And so what I wanted to do with this book is actually make a case for a full-throated defense of liberty-first politics from the standpoint of old-school fusionism, the combination of sort of uh, political libertarianism and social traditionalism and conservatism that I truly believe is the authentic American governing tradition. 
And the reason that I wanted to do that is because, as I said before, there's a lot of noise on the right about this new thing called national conservatism. Right? Rather than fighting the administrative state, we're basically going to staff the administrative state, use it for our purposes. We're going to have tariffs. We're going to have all these costly rules and regulations that re-divert commerce towards channels that we think are more appropriate. And I think that that's fundamentally a misunderstanding about what the American governing tradition is all about. So what I wanted to do is write a book for the general public. This is really libertarianism 101, about how to think about liberty as a philosophical position, how to think about the American experiment specifically as an institutionalization of political liberty, and also engage some hot button uh, political and policy issues, monetary policy, fiscal policy, healthcare, international trade, war and peace, all these issues that are directly relevant to the challenges we confront today to explain what a liberty first approach to politics has to say about these things. Because I think that the case needs to be made that we're running away from ourselves here, getting away from what makes us Americans. and We need to get back to it if we want to make people prosper. Hey, there you go. There you go. So, so if we went back to the founding fathers and what was going on there in the spirit of 76, what would you say was their ideas that were floating around? I mean, were they more classical liberal libertarian overall and from, from your viewpoint? Or, or was there something else that was going on that really set the stage for this freedom and prosperity that we've had you know, since then, basically? Absolutely. Classical liberalism, the philosophy of the Enlightenment, specifically the English and Scottish Enlightenments of the late 18th century, that was very important. Uh, the politics of liberty, also very important. I want to be clear, I talk a lot in the book about how great the Constitution is and how I think that an originalist approach to the Constitution is the correct one and the only one that really makes sense. That being said, the Constitution of the United States is not a strictly libertarian governing document. That charter clearly authorizes several things that perhaps some diehard libertarians would not be okay with. We're going to have to wrestle with that at some point. I don't think that that's really a deal breaker. The point is what the text actually says versus what we have now is so out of whack that just by getting back to the plain meaning of the words as understood by the original public meaning in the document, we can really improve governance in this country. And so while I do think that the founding fathers had a complex, a group, a range of values that they were willing to pursue through politics, I do think the basic perspective with respect to the national government, the federal government, is first and foremost to protect the free. Because it's baked into the American system that we do have layers of government. We don't just have the national government. We have states and local governments too. The job for those more local areas of government, which are closer to the citizen, they're easier to monitor and control, it's safer and more appropriate for those more local governments to advance a more common good slash virtue-oriented governing framework. We should be libertarians at the national level, and we can go for a little bit more politically at the state and local level and allow a multiplicity of governing experiments to help us locate the boundaries private and public sector. I think that that's basically the approach that the founding fathers were rallying behind when they ratified the Constitution. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And, and I mean, if you, if you read a lot of what the writings were by the founding fathers and, and other things that were going on, they were wrestling with a lot of these ideas. But I agree with you at the end of the day, their overlying philosophy was more about liberty. How do we preserve liberty the most? It, what's interesting, though, is when you start talking about kind of the Hamiltonians versus Jeffersonians and, and those debates that were going on. I mean, in some sense, Hamilton, um, not in some sense, but he, he wanted larger government, especially at the federal level, a stronger centralized government. He talked about a central bank, things of that nature. What's interesting is uh, I'm actually taking my boy, 
uh, Bryson to go watch uh, Hamilton in San Antonio here soon. <laughs> there you, you know, go. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's fun. Um, but uh, but also you have Jefferson who went in more limited government, uh, I, comparatively to to Hamilton. But they were wrestling with a lot of these ideas then um, and against the central bank and things of that nature that we still see um, in, in, in other ways, you know, but I think that you still see a lot of those aspects of the, the, the wrestling, the, the fighting, the tension that's there um, between different, different entities, different individuals to really have this battle of ideas that I agree with you. We need more of that today. Unfortunately, we don't always get that, but I, but I wonder, do you kind of connect some of those ideas that were going with the founding fathers to what we're doing today, or is this something totally different? Absolutely. Because even today, there are basic debates and disagreements about what the constitution is and what it means. So I think that to be perfectly honest, we have to realize that if you chart the transition in national government governance in the United States from the Articles of Confederation to the Constitution, the Constitution was pretty clearly adopted as an explicit attempt to strengthen government. In fact, some of its strongest partisans were admirers of what we might call a fiscal military state. They wanted national greatness. They wanted to be able to play the international game of thrones with the powers of Europe. I would include Hamilton in that camp, for example. I would even include George Washington in that camp. Understanding the history is important. That's all well and good. At the same time, we have to realize that the way that the Constitution was sold to the public was on the understanding that powers not explicitly granted were retained. That's why we have the Ninth and Tenth Amendments, right? And so, yes, as soon as the Constitution was ratified, you had some key federal federalists pulling a bait and switch, right? We got the government that we wanted. Now we can do our state building project. Now we can do things with a permanent army, a, a central bank, and all that stuff. The reason those debates are relevant for today is because American history does provide us a pretty neat experiment as to what kinds of forces are going to be the most effective checks on government overreach. We can't count on the judiciary to stop this process. We can't count on the presidency to stop this process. We can't count on the administrative state certainly to stop this process. And so I think that one of the reasons that we've had an atrophy of liberty-oriented government was because the proper authority of authoritative powers of Congress have been usurped, partly usurped, partly given away. We've got to admit that Congress is actually uh, at least partly complicit in its degradation of authority. We need to actually return to a kind of government where the people's elected representatives in Congress assembled actually do have much more of a say over meaningful public policy. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And, I, and unfortunately, they have kind of... <laughs> given that up in many ways. I mean, a lot of it's went to the executive branch. I mean, when I was at the White House as Chief of Commerce for the Office of Management and Budget in the Trump administration, I mean, there was more action that was taking place even then. And, and some would say, well, it was good because of the deregulation and things of that nature, which I, I agree with are, are good, but, but it becomes too much run by executive order and not as much run by laws, <laughs> not as much run by what Congress should really be doing more of because what you see is you have one administration who may do some good things and some bad things on trade and, and tariffs and things of that nature. But then at the same time, when the next administration comes in, they just take away all of those um, you know, rules or regulations. In this case, that was deregulation. They say, you know what? We need those and we need even more. And so you can have the whims of whatever the executive branch wants to do compared to Congress, which I don't think was what the founding fathers wanted um, from, from what I understand. No. But, but what do you think? At yeah. that point, it's de facto legislating. Yeah. It's something that the executive branch was never supposed to do. Mm hmm. The whole yeah. point of having Congress be in charge of this is to take the deliberate sense of the various sub communities that comprise the nation 
and to make sure that you have sufficient buy-in amongst all the constituencies to actually get policy changed. Now, it's okay for policy to change when the government changes. That's how it's supposed to work. But saying that policy should change when the government changes is not to say, okay, we have a new president in the Oval Office, so we're just going to draft executive memos, have them sign them, and the entire operation and interpretation of the statutes and the books is going to flip on a dime. Mm-hmm. That's clearly not how it's supposed to work, and it's obviously bad for the operation of the economy. So yes. we all talk about the Constitution. We all talk about how much we like checks and balances until we get our hands on power. And this is something that you can even indict Jefferson himself yeah. on. The yeah. Louisiana Purchase. So right. we need to stare a hard reality that we can't just care about outcomes. Yeah, Outcomes are great, but if we get the outcomes we want divorced from the process, divorced from following the rules of the game, we're setting ourselves up for our own destruction. Because what I would argue that's really unique about the American experiment, we can talk about constitutionalism, we can talk about representative democracy, all these things in some ways were embodied in some polities in the past. What makes the American experiment unique is the insistence on rulers and ruled alike following the law of the land. That's the unique American contribution to the rule of law. And if we're willing to look the other way for how we get the results that we want, just because we have a good, quote unquote, good person sitting you know, behind the resolute desk, we're not, we're not being true to ourselves. We have to do these things. We have to do the right things, but we have to do them the right way, too. Yes. Yeah. Uh, well put there, Alex. You know, whenever I'm thinking about what's going on in America, and you talked earlier about the national conservatives and kind of the the new right, if you will, the the, the common refrain there, though, is that the old right is what they're some are calling it, are these market fundamentalists, and you know that the, that the American economy has been led by somehow libertarians for so long that we've been built on these free markets, and we're leaving the American people behind. We've got to find something different whether it be the the common good which i want to talk to you some about in a little bit but but other t- ways of thinking about what government is and and you brought up the point of whoever's going to be in power if we could just get the right person in power then we can make all these changes and it almost seems like and i want to get your perspective on this but it almost seems like they're willing to say you know what we're not going to get all the changes that we want we can't roll back the regulatory state. We can't roll taxes far enough back. We can't cut government spending. So instead, let's have the government do what we want it to do and have the pe- the right people in place so that we can move the cards around and 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 get the outcomes to your point too, the outcomes that we want. And you know, I see that as being a a, a bad scenario. I think from Hayek's knowledge problem, from public choice from James Buchanan. I mean, we could go through a lot of long list of some of these free market economists who I think were, were spot on, but it but it really is kind of I think a, a change that we're seeing within the discussion that's happening across the nation. And I wonder what your perspective is on this, because I know you've written some about it and had some pushback here and there. And you know, I'd love to get your perspective on it though yeah there's a lot to unpack there yeah so in terms of free market fundamentalism zombie reaganism i don't actually know what any of that means yeah uh because they refuse to define it they just point out people who they say are free market fundamentalists and when you sort of uh, look under the hood what that really means is they tend to think that market processes rather than political processes generally do a better job of allocating resources that's hardly a revolutionary claim. That's sort of just standard econ 101, right? Especially if you take account of the dynamic effects, the error correction mechanisms that are in markets that just don't exist in, the, in politics, especially at the national level. You talk about the hollowing out of manufacturing, right? It's true that there's less manufacturing employment 
than there was in 1970. But you look at manufacturing output, we're pretty much producing more than we ever have. We have not outsourced the manufacturing base to China. It's not the case that the living standards of ordinary workers are falling. If you compute the average hourly wage of a worker and then figure out how many hours of work you need to buy, you need to work to buy things like uh, appliances or food or vacations or anything, it turns out that that has fallen enormously since the 1970s. One of the only areas that hasn't fallen is housing and healthcare. We should be honest about that. What do those two sectors have in common? Oh, yeah, they're some of the sectors where government intervention is the strongest, most arbitrary, and most unpredictable. There's a reason. So if you get behind all these factual claims behind why free market fundamentalism has sort of failed, well, first of all, have we ever had it? I mean, like, what's happened to the number of pages in the Federal Register? What's right. happened to the number of bills passed by Congress? Right, monetary policy, right? The fraction of new dollar bill and the fraction of newly created money entering in circulation every year. Government spending, the deficit, the debt, all these things have gone up. So if you reduce all of libertarianism to, hey, we cut marginal tax rates and got some, you know, trucking and airline deregulation. No, that's not actually what we're talking about here. So that's really, <laughs> yeah. it's really just a straw man. Uh, one interesting point also that you mentioned was the sort of alliance between national conservatives and common good conservatives. I would actually tend to dehomogenize those. I think that there's some overlap, but I don't necessarily think that they're the same thing. I don't think that guys like Warren Cass and Marco Rubio are necessarily arguing for the same thing. I think if you pushed him, Rubio would still say that, yeah, he wants to radically decrease the scale and scope of government, but he wants to increase it in certain specific areas. So on net, a decrease, but he wants to do more for protecting unions and all things like that. And of course, you can raise the incentive problem critique to that, which is very salient. Right? It's all well and good to say that you want to tinker with the government that way. But when push comes to shove, all the interest groups want to expand and none of the interest groups want to cut. So if you try and implement an agenda of widespread repeal combined with select expansion, all you're going to get is growth. Right, you're not going to actually get the repeal. That's the basic public choice problem associated with a lot of this stuff that I think is very powerful. Yeah, yeah. And, and with common good capitalism or common good, whatever we want to, how would you define common good? How would I define the common good? Yeah. Yeah, great question. It's not a term that a lot of people, different people talk about it in different ways. My, my way of thinking about it is very standard. There is such a thing as an authentic human community at various levels, all the way from the family at the local level to the state, now more socially distant. These human communities cannot solely be reduced to their individual members. And those communities have substantive moral and practical goods that help them flourish as communities. So the common good is really the sum total of conditions that help a specific authentic human community flourish as a community. Every authentic human grouping has a common good. The family has a common good. The town has a common good. The nation has a company. And the idea is you simply can't reduce these human groups to their individual members and voluntary association. Groups have some real independent existence that's constituted by their members, but they're not reducible to their members. And so it takes a more broader holistic perspective. And this is something that I think is, you know, branching out for a little bit. I think that this is something that is thoroughly biblical. If you look at how the Bible talks about the family, if you look at how the Bible talks about nations. As a whole, it's clearly that they're it's clear that they're not just voluntary associations of individuals. And in some sense, they they even precede or prior to voluntary. I think that this is a perspective that people who are friendly to liberty don't necessarily need to be opposed to. And in fact, I think that we can only have a free society if we practice the communitarian virtues. 
right? Communitarian virtue and political liberty are complements, not substitutes. We're not going to have a free society except in a society where churches are strong, where families are strong, where civil association is strong. You sometimes get uh, libertarian economists specifically suspicious of the idea of I would argue that that's because they're inappropriately generalizing from their methodological individualism to a sort of philosophical individualism, right? They start from the perspective of when we're doing social science, we analyze social outcomes, everything from how market prices are formed to how public policy is formed based on the choices of individuals. Now that's a social scientific modeling dimension, and I think that that's the right one. But it's not the case that just because that's how we're doing social science that we think that all that exists are isolated individuals. That's not that's not the social landscape that I think that those who believe in a free and virtuous society should get. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. And this is part of your your other book, right? The political economy of distributism, um, mm-hmm. property, liberty, and the common good. And, and and I think that actually helps me the way that you just put that. I, I like the way you put that there, because I've kind of grappled with what is the common good. And I think what I'm hearing though a lot especially again from the national conservatives, the, 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 the new right is almost like the same sort of rhetoric claims that you made there about the common good. But I don't know that you would want the government to determine to allocate what the common good is though, correct? I certainly don't want the national government to okay. be thickly involved with a substantive common good program. Yeah. Now that doesn't mean that necessarily that any and all policy reform shouldn't take into account of the common good. Right. We already live in an era where the federal government has its tendrils and everything. Mm -hmm. If we want to reform that, we're going to need to get buy in from multiple communities, from multiple interest groups, multiple stakeholders, for lack of a better word. And so what I talk a lot about in the book is this idea that there is an essential connection between property, the ownership of productive assets and liberty and not just negative liberty, right? not just the right to be left alone, but the sense that property gives you a degree of independence. Hmm. It gives you an alternative to somebody trying to dictate terms to you. Unless you have that positive degree of independence, you're not going to be able to sustain free political institutions. That's one of the key sociopolitical insights behind the distributist school of political economy that I talk a lot about in the book. And I think that there's something to that. I think that we need to take seriously that unless we have the average or representative American household think in terms of ownership and responsibility rather than rentership or just merely, you know, passing along rather than not having a stake in the social order. That's what it's ultimately about, having a stake in a free society. So there might be reforms to federal programs that don't go fully libertarian, but nonetheless address those side concerns. This is actually something similar to what the Reformicon school was talking about about 10 to 15 years ago. And remember that everyone yelled at them and got very mad at them for thinking that, hey, instead of, you know, all these tariffs and subsidies and stuff, we should just have repurposed federal monies to have people who are left behind by the global division of labor to retrain and relocate. At the margin, that seems perfectly sensible, right? It's less bad, more pro-liberty and more humane than what we have right now. Is it strictly libertarian? No. But we're never going to have strictly 100% libertarian national government. We should be happy to take the prudential reforms that we can if they on net increase liberty and on net increase the common good. Again, I think that there are ways to make these things complementary to each other. Yep, yep. That makes a lot of sense. And thank you for that explanation, because I I also think you're right that we need to be happy or, or glad when we can get some incrementalism towards the direction of freedom and liberty. Uh, sometimes I know my more utopian mindset of thinking about policies and where I want the the American economy to be and where I want the globe to be, you know, is to let people prosper, right? So in my mind, I'm envisioning this utopia where 
there is human flourishing, is that everybody can find a job, can find a job, that there is very limited government. There's no need for social safety nets. You know, there's not corporate welfare and all these other things because we're living kind of the institutional framework that Douglas North and others talk about is you have these social and economic and political institutions that are working together in kind of um, before the common good, right? And in, in, in harmony with one another. And, and I would love to see that. And I hope that we get there one day, but, but we're not there yet. And it's gonna take a long time to get to that point where we can be more reliant on families and communities and churches and synagogues and everybody else coming together. I mean, there's a lot of money that's being redistributed out of the private sector through taxes and, and regulations and other things that I think would be better used and more productive in the productive private sector. But it's, it's a long ways to getting to that point. And so we, we do need to be careful of not being too utopian in our viewpoint. I mean, I'm, I'm a classical liberal, libertarian, and I, I want these things as much as the next person. And, and so sometimes what I see is that those of us who are more on the free market angle will be like, look, it's, it's all or nothing. And, and with that mindset, I, I'm, I, I kind of worry, kind of struggle sometimes there that we won't get anything, that we won't be able to come together to have some negotiation and have some compromise. That was back to the spirit of 76. I mean, they were, they were having to compromise on a lot of stuff, you know, at the end of the day. Uh, but I wonder what some of your thoughts are on that. Vance, I don't think that you actually need to apologize at all for being a little bit utopian. Because okay. without that first utopian premise, without that moral imagination, that moral vision, we don't know which direction we want to go. Hmm. You need to have some idea of the destination you want to travel to, you want to progress to. Now, that being said, once you have that and you have to come to the negotiating table with the various stakeholders who have a very different definition or destination in mind, that's when you have to think about, okay, how can we make sure that everyone walks away from this with half a loan? Especially given that we do not live right now in anything, whatever free market fundamentalism means, whatever libertarianism means, it does not mean what we have right now. Yeah. It just doesn't. Right. You cannot call governments at all level consuming 40 percent of the national income libertarianism. It just doesn't work. So we're outside. We're off the edge of the map right here. There be monsters. We got to figure out how to make progress in the direction that we want to go. And it's fine to be purist in terms of what we ultimately want in our best of all possible worlds. But when we're talking about building coalitions to push through reforms that make everybody at least a little bit happy. Yes, we have to be willing to say, OK, this is not strictly libertarian, but it's libertarian at the margin. And it also satisfies the other groups that we need to keep happy in our coalition. That's not a that's not a betrayal. That's compromise. That's the art of politics. That's what you have to do if you want to live together with other human beings who substantively disagree with you about what the good life means. It's that or fight. It's that or fight. We need to have pluralism as a feature of our institutions mm. so that we can all live together peacefully and productively. It's okay to think you're right. You're going to have to compromise with people who think you're wrong, who think that they're wrong. You've got to find a way that you can actually make sure you can live with the results of that compromise. Yep. Amen. Now, that's a good word. So in the last few minutes that we have here together, Alex, and I wish we had all day, and we'll, I'll be back on again soon. Let's, let's try to bring this together with some of the current events that are happening. You know, there's, mm -hmm. there's a lot going on. I know you're writing about this at American Institute for Economic Research and Wall Street Journal and a lot of places that you write. What's been on your mind most uh, here recently? Well, I don't know if you know, Vance, but it turns out that the, uh, the dollar has been depreciating a little bit faster than, yes. than it has in recent years since about you know, 2020, 2021. Inflation has really been on my mind. It wouldn't still be on my mind, but for the fact that you just have so many politically motivated hacks trying to pretend that the cause of inflation is something other than this. Mm -hmm. Right? 
I'm tired of hearing about greedflation. It's not corporate. Tired of hearing about supply chains. It's not supply chain. Tired of hearing about rents, housing prices. It's not that, right? Which is not to say, by the way, that supply side problems can't contribute to inflation. They absolutely can. It's about right. which one's in the driver's seat, which one's the ultimate first cause, right? It takes some very basic arithmetic to show that if you reduce the growth rate of the economy by 1%, if the economy is growing by 1% slower than it otherwise would, all else being equal, prices are going to go up 1% faster. So yeah, you can have supply side inflation in that sense. But if you're running at 5, 6, 7, 8, 9% inflation, like how much slack do you think that there is in the supply side? At most, we can probably squeeze 1% to 2% real growth out of that, which means that if we can get inflation down to 7%, right? That's still three times the Federal Reserve's target. Right. So that was about a year ago. Now inflation is somewhere between 4 and 5%. That's still twice to more than twice the Federal Reserve's target. When are we, or are we going to come to the obvious conclusion that increasing the monetary base by 25% in under two years might have had something to do with it? That massive government deficits that pressured the central bank to monetize the debt had something to do with it. Again, this is not the same thing as saying, like, you can't think that the supply side conditions matter. Very early in the inflation, you remember, I was a supply side inflation guy because I was looking at the numbers. I thought that money demand increased enough that it wasn't the money supply. But very quickly, as the new data came in, it became clear that aggregate demand was surging. Mm. And if nominal income is elevated, that's the ballgame, right? It's demand side stuff. It's demand side stuff. So I view that a lot of these attempts to try and place the blame for somewhere, somewhere else than fiscal and monetary institutions is really just a motivated reasoning to try and create political cover. And it's contemptible. Yep. No, I, I agree with you. And I remember, Alex, we had those discussions back in the day when all that was going on and in those early stages. And, and we had some good discussions about inflation, where it was coming from and the monetary base. And it, I learned a lot during that period. You know, I, I had assumptions. I, I had this mental model of a framework that I was thinking about through with thinking this through with, you know, monetarism, some Austrian school and, and how these different factors were, were playing while still trying to figure out, okay, what's going on in the supply chains and the shutdowns and everything else. And I think we'll continue to learn more throughout this process. One of those things though, that I may be wrong now is, and, and I'd love to get pushback from you this time, is when I look at the economy and see the stress that's on people across the country, maybe not as much in Texas as some other places, but they're continuing to feel quite a bit of stress when it comes to their budgets. You know, when you look at real weekly earnings or real average earnings, those can have been declining year over year, adjusted, you know, that's of course adjusted for inflation for about 26 straight months. When I look at GDP, GDP had those two consecutive quarters of the negative growth or, or declining real GDP in the first and second quarter of 2022. And then they've they popped up a little bit and they've been slightly positive, still pretty slow if you think about it, you know, year over year. But when you look at GDP, which is the production, the supply side, really of the economy, and you look at GDI, the gross domestic income, kind of the demand side, if you will, if you take the average of the, those gross domestic output, has been negative or declining for four out of the last five quarters. There's only been one quarter that's been positive over that period. Now, I know that the National Bureau of Economic Research that dates our recessions, they don't use GDP directly. They have about six, you know, they have six other measures that they like to look at with the labor market, which looks pretty strong and stuff like that. But, you know, I've been making a case, Alex, that 
we've been in a recession for a while. It's just that there's a lot of other factors that are kind of covering it up. And I got pushed back and, and that's okay. I, I may be wrong at the end of the day, but I, I just feel in what I'm seeing from some of these other data indicators that are out there for manufacturing surveys and, and some others, that there is this slowing that's going on that's not connected with a lot of what's happening in the labor market. And this has changed up some of the, the, the relationships that are out there. But, but what say you, Alex? Because I always appreciate your, your feedback. Yeah, this is a great question because the economic indicators that we usually use are giving us some very unusual information, right? You wouldn't expect labor markets to be this hot uh, with everything else going on. This might be definitional, but usually I think of recessions as inherently cyclic. A recession is a temporary deviation away from the economy's maximum sustainable output and employment. Mm -hmm. Usually what happens is demand gets off track, income falls, that causes uh, economic problems, but eventually markets work themselves out and we get back to potential. Right? Without, and with the right monetary policy, it might happen faster. With bad monetary policy, it could happen slower. But this idea that markets will eventually self I'm not sure that we're going to get self-correction right now because I think that, as you said, a lot of our problems that are causing this lingering economic delays are on the supply side. In which case, it's not really cyclical, right? As long as you have those costly regulations on the books, the economy is going to continue to suffer, right? So we could get anemic growth, basically you know, zero to 1% growth for the foreseeable future until the institutions change. If it's that long lived, I'm not sure it makes sense to call it a recession. We're definitely poorer, right? We're definitely producing less, but it's not cyclical, right? It's like uh, you're not going to run your best 100 meter dash if you have a ball and chain clasp around your ankle. Everybody's like, well, what's happened to markets? Why aren't they working? Well, look at the runner. He's dragging around 50 extra pounds. Yeah. Take off the ball and change. And I guarantee you, you'll get a PR. Yeah. No, that's, a, that's a great point. I appreciate that because that, that'll be helpful when I'm thinking through some of the, the next steps and what's happening in the economy. And I'm, I'm hopeful that, you know, we'll, we'll see that supply side really start to open up. I mean, we've seen on the demand side, you know, the monetary base is contracting about 5%. You're, the, well, 6% is the monetary base so year over year. Um, M2 is down about 5% year over year. Yeah, M2 so, is down just a little bit under five. Uh, it's yeah. pretty fast. That is worrying me a little bit. So you, you could go two ways on that, right? On the one hand, there does seem to be a lot of financial disintermediation going on right now. And that's putting a lot of downward pressure on the monetary aggregates. So much so that you have things like, as you just pointed out, the money supply falling faster than it ever has since the Great Depression. Not the Great Recession of 2008, the Great Depression of the on the other hand, the level of aggregate demand, the level of nominal income is still highly elevated. So even with those shrinkages, it's not like we're back close to the pre-pandemic trend. We're still way, way, way above it. Yeah. So everything is going to ultimately come down to what sorts of expectations have been baked into the contracts that underlie the economy. Right? Are people expecting that the aggregate demand surge in 2022 was the new normal? And so this slower money supply growth, so slow, in fact, that it's shrinking is actually going to throw a wrench in the economy's gears? Or were they thinking more long-term than that, in which case this is going to be a pretty gentle disinflation? I'll be honest with you. I don't know which one of those is going to be the case. I'm hoping that we get the soft landing, right? You know, it's it's never a good idea to wish for the thing to crash and burn just because it would be bad for your political enemies, right? We're talking about the well-being of millions of workers in the American economy. I don't think it's a good idea to hope things don't work just because you might find it in your short-run interest. That being said, I'm a little bit worried about how things are going to go over the next couple of months. Uh, best that we can do is wait and see. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And it's a great word of caution too, is that we don't want to be pessimists. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm an optimistic economist. Those two things usually don't go together. And we're both, you know, happy warriors in this fight for 
what's happening in, in Texas where we both live that we've had some you know mm-hmm. concerns of too much spending, not enough tax relief, no school choice so far. I, I think we're going to get some of that as the special sessions go on, but but we've got to keep keep fighting. And, and, and I think it goes, Ross. yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think that these books that you're writing, Alex, are really instrumental in helping us to get a better framework, a better foundation for where we have been, where we are now, and then where we're going to go in the future. So I, I really appreciate the work that you're doing, you know, and and um, what, what would you like to leave us with, with any last words today? I think the thing that I would really want to leave your audience with is that the model that we tried in the 1980s worked. The only problem with the 1980s model of deregulation, tax cuts, fiscal restraint, is that we didn't do enough of it. We don't want these things simply because we just are cranks and we have some problem with the government telling us what to do. We're talking again about the system that actually results in rising living standards for ordinary families and for the vast majority of the nation. You cannot redistribute wealth that has not yet been produced. So even if you care disproportionately about the well-being of the least among us, which I would associate, which I would assert is a very legitimate, thoroughly Christian thing to care about, the wealth needs to be there to redistribute to people. You have to unshackle the economy so it can actually produce. Hmm. Stagnation is not written into the cards, right? It is a result of a series of bad policy choices that have been made since 2020. We can and should get the American economy back on track by getting back from the 2020 model and getting back more towards a Reagan-esque model, for lack of a better word, right? Everyone calls it zombie Reaganism. It's not dead, so it can't be a zombie. It's still very much alive. If you don't ask, if you don't believe me, look at what happened to the economy after the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act passed, uh, Act passed in 2017. It's as zombie Reagan as it comes. Look at what it did. Yep. It did great things. We can get more of that. There's no reason we can't have more of that. Well, I agree with you, Alex, and I think that there's a lot of work that needs to get done. Um, I could even I hope for a... Instead of Reagan-esque, maybe a, a Coolidge-esque, have some Coolidge policies even as well. I like even it. better, even better. That's right. Um, but but these are the types of things we need to be talking about, you know. And I think even with your your work on the common good, I think has brought about a good discussion that's out there um, and everything else. And so keep it going, and and we'll have you. I'll have you back on soon. But for for you and your family, God bless you, and and continue to do the great work that you're doing. God bless you, Vance. Thanks for having me on. Hey, thanks so much, Alex. And for the audience, please go and leave us a five-star rating. Um, subscribe, share this with your family and friends. And, and don't forget to go out and purchase a copy of The Spirit of 70, uh, 76, Libertarianism and American Renewal by Alex Salter. It's, good. it's a great book. You really got to check it out. And so until next time, let people prosper.